So luckily I was sitting there looking, you know, sitting there in bed, and I'm like, shouldn't I be getting up soon? And I turned and looked at the clock, yeah, right now. And so, anyway, so I wasn't later, and this was, this was like, dumb clock, because it's a smart clock. Speaking of history, we're in the Age of Enlightenment, and this week it's going to be all about Catholics. Catholics are doing stuff this week, so put your put your Catholic hat on, and, and, and we're, we're in that mindset. But before I get there, i got to take Pardon me? No, 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 I, not Pope Hat. Not Pope Hat. My Pope Hat is sitting... Right? Richard gave me a Pope Hat one time. So I got a Pope Hat sitting at the Bishop's Miter sitting in my office. But, we're, so we're not going there. Anyway, but we are going to talk about... This. Before I go there, I've got to talk about Mohammed bin Saud. Just for a second. Just, just well, yeah, because it's 1744, so i got to talk about it. Just for a second, um, and this is this is his flag. So, if you remember, the Muslims don't tend to like it when you make paintings of them. You're not supposed to make representations of any creature because they take that that commandment really seriously, not to make any kind of graven image or any kind of thing that might be worshipped. So they take that to mean you, you should even paint a picture of a puppy because then you're making an image of the puppy, and somebody might try to worship the image of the puppy, which is why you get so many beautiful. Muslim designs and mosaics and patterns and things because they won't do any images. So we don't have a lot of pictures of Muhammad bin Saud. So I got to show you his flag. Anyway, 1744, he rose to power. He had been born into kind of, kind of a well-placed family, but not a particularly powerful family. So he's, he's, think of it this way. He's essentially a noble, but he's only a minor noble. But he didn't want to stay a minor noble. He's got plans. He wants to grow. So when his father, Saud bin Muhammad ibn Mukrin, which is, because ibn means son of, right? So his father is Saud, which means he's Muhammad, son of Saud, right? So, bin Saud rises to power in 1726, uh, to the leadership of the family at least. But in 1744, he met this religious leader named Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab. This guy was, for lack of a better term, a nut. He preached an extremely radical version of Sunni Muslim Islam that has come to be known Wahhabism. Uh, it's extremely intense, extremely militant. Now, when you think militant, you tend to think like Shiite Muslims. This is a militant Sunni Muslim. Uh, they taught a very conservative uh, Islam that dominated everything, dominated what music you listen to, who do you get to talk to, treated women as absolute slaves. Not just wear the hijab, but you you can beat them, you should beat them, You should. it's good to take slaves, it's good to dominate things. Um, anything that could be perceived as venerating ancestors or venerating people. So any old shrines, any marked tombs, anything like this should be destroyed. So they went through and they found like every classic Muslim artifact, every classic Muslim site, and destroyed it. Um, it's very, very militant, as much as is physically possible. Um, so much so that, that he also preached that even if you're a Muslim, if you don't do what we think Muslims should do, you're not a true Muslim. Which means that you're an infidel, and since we should be killing all the infidels, then we should be killing you too. Even though you're Muslim, 
you're not our kind of Muslim, which means you're not Muslim enough. So, of course, other Muslims, Shiites, Sunnis, etc., all of a sudden they're going, you guys are nuts! I mean, even the really militant Muslims were going, you guys are bonkers! You take this to an, a massively high extreme. Um, in fact, that one of the main things that, uh, that the other Muslims at this time were saying is, I don't even, you are so adamant that you're being the only holy Muslims, and yet, I don't even know that we feel like you're doing this because of Islam anymore. Because you're destroying all these sites, but taking all the gold. You're going into these different villages and forcing them to do your thing, and then taking all their stuff, and taking all their women, and making them your slaves. I think it's almost more like you're, you know, you're Vikings or something more than you are Muslims. Does this sound familiar at all? How so? A couple of you not. This kind of Islam, have you seen it? If this sounds at all like ISIS, it's because they're Wahhabi Sunnis. So for those people that sit there, for the most part, that's the vast majority of, of, of the, new, the new movement of ISIS, everybody's like, oh, this thing that's come out of nowhere, has been percolating in the, their particular Muslim pot for 270 years. This is these guys. Yeah. And so, because so, I remember talking to somebody about this not too long ago, and they're like, so are they Shiites? I'm like, there's a few, but no, predominantly they're Sunni. And they're, but I thought the Sunni were the normal ones. I'm like, okay, A, so not the way to summarize Islam. Not, not a very nice way of doing that. But B, now there's extremists, there's extreme Baptists, there's extremists in any religious group that you can have. But this particular group of extremists actually came from Muhammad ibn uh, Abd al-Wahhab and his way of thinking back in 1744. Anyway, so the two guys went, you know, we can actually help each other here. I think this actually works well together. Ibn Abd al-Wahhab uh, 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 succinctly and said, I want you, Bin uh, Saud, to grant me an oath that you will perform jihad against all the unbelievers. You will slaughter everybody who isn't us. In return, you will be Imam, the leader of the Muslim community, and I will be leader in all the religious matters. That's going to be our actions. That's how we're going to interact with one another. And so, Ibn Saud established a dynasty in Arabia that ended up taking over most of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, when you add Saud's soldiers to um, al-Wahhab's fanatics, do it that way, you get a chunk of fanatical soldiers, or you get fanatics with soldiers backing them. That's pretty potent when you get, a, when you get a, an absolute extremist vision and pointy swords and guns, which again, take back to that picture that we have of, of ISIS. Now, this is why, when we think of this, we talk about Saudi Arabia. This is how the first Saudi uh, emirate was from Muhammad ibn Saud. And so this is why we call it Saudi Arabia. For all those people who always go, so what does the Saudi mean? This is what Saudi means. Saudi Arabia, ironically enough, is one of the Middle Eastern nations to stand against ISIS and call them terrorists. They're really, really nasty. We don't like them. Why? Yes. 
Well, over, over time, Saudi Arabia has kind of de-fanaticalized in a lot of different ways and tried to mainstream themselves with the rest of the international community. They like to think that they're, you know, a vaguely western kind of power when they want to be. Why else? Yeah, I mean, nobody likes it when there's other people who say, yeah, by the way, we're better at this Islam thing than we are, than you are, so we'll just take over your country. It's like, even if you are a fanatic, you're not going to like other fanatics telling you that they'd like to be the fanatics in charge of your country. I mean, it's important to realize, this year alone, Saudi Arabia has beheaded twice as many people as ISIS has within their own country. We go, oh, ISIS, oh, they behead people. You go, the Saudi government has beheaded twice as many people. We just don't think about it because they're an established government instead of a conquering power. Right? Terrorism, fanaticism, kind of in the eye of the beholder. Because this is a, not a picture of ISIS, this is a picture of a government agent in Saudi Arabia. Alright, but I promised Catholics, so we're going to talk about Catholics. Um, oh, I did, because I said this is going to be predominantly, but I had to stop. You see why, when we're in 1744, I've got to at least stop and talk about the seeds of stuff that is going on today that we need to know about. 1744, also the time of another Jacobite rebellion, because it's been a little while, Wait, and we need to... Which are we on? Four or five? Uh, this is technically the fourth okay. uh, Jacobite rebellion. So we get yet another one. That's Bonnie Prince. No, don't call him Bonnie. <laughs> Bonnie's an adjective. Bonnie's an adjective. If you just say Bonnie, it's a girl's name. But you call him Bonnie Prince Charlie, what you mean is, is that good-looking young man, that good Scotsman who's never really been in Scotland because he was born and raised in Rome. But he dresses like a Scotsman, and that makes him Scottish. So, yes, good Catholic. Bonnie Prince Charlie has been growing up and he still wants his father James's crown. He's just like, no, I need that, which is why, again, we call it the Jacobite Rebellion, because, right, Jacob, Jacob is the Latin version of James. So when you're talking about a Jamesian thing, it's Jacob. Anyway, so he's like, yep, I, I still want that, th that throne. It's my crown. And so because of King George's War, which has been going on, remember, that War of Austrian Succession, <laughs> Uh, France and England are back to really hating each other a lot. And so Louis XV goes, yeah, anything I can do to stick it to England, happy to do. How can I help? Louis puts together an expeditionary force of 10,000 men. He's like, we're going to land on the southern coast of England. We're going to establish a beachhead. We've got arms. We've got ammunition. We've got money. We're going to kick them. Charlie, why don't you come back from Rome? We're sending you over there. Charles hears about this. He's like, ah. First boat from Rome starts going over to France. These guys are going to are going to start this, and, and, and when he gets there, it'll be great. Because as you know, England is in control of, of France today, right? Yeah. Storms in the English Channel sink almost all the boats. Again? Again? Okay. Do you understand why the weather forecast was like the most important bit of information for Eisenhower with D-Day? I mean, he's like, I want 15-minute updates on the weather because it looked like they were going to lose their opportunity. It was going to be at least another month before they were going to be able to go because there was horrible storms in the English Channel. So he had 15-minute increments. He's like, I, I want a weather forecast, and then a weather forecast, and then a weather forecast. And finally, like in the middle of the night, guy comes back and goes, I think you're going to have a window. It looks like we will have enough decent weather that you can actually cross the English Channel. 
And Eisenhower's like, ting, that's what we're doing. So, crucial. How many times has England been saved by the fact that English weather stinks? <laughs> it's horrible. You sink the Spanish flotillas, uh, you sink the, the Armada, you sink the French. Is this why no one's ever attacked Seattle? Probably. <laughs> but the, you know, the English will talk about an English summer, which is horrible weather, right? That's why the Romans didn't invade Ireland. <laughs> they didn't invade Scotland because they're like, they're nuts up there. <laughs> So, you just sit there and you go, England is an island and it's pretty much safe. There's, again, reasons why, why is it Hitler took over all of Europe and was getting to England. It's like, horrible weather. Anyway, so 1745, yet another Jacobite rebellion started. I know, I gotta, because I gotta keep saying this. It is technically another Jacobite rebellion. So we're up to like five now. So, Charles is now in France going, where's my beachhead? Nothing happened. So he takes a pleasure cruise. He's just, he's just going to outfit a frigate and go out under the ocean. Not, not any plans. Any, no. He's just hanging. And then he goes to Glenfinnan in Scotland and raises his standard and says, I'm the king. And in, and in, and in classic uh, Hunt for an October fashion, he, he left a, a letter for the for the king of France to be opened like a week after he left. He's like, and, and he opened the letter and goes, by the way, I'm really going to be king. You know, it's, so so France is like, oh, um, well, let's start putting together an invasion, I guess. So he's he's there he's at Glenfinnan. There's also supposed to be a frigate coming in from Ireland with about 700 men and arms and equipment and everything, but the weather was so bad. They, they, actually, the weather was bad, made them slow down, and then they got caught by the British and they had to turn back. So, so basically, Charlie is sitting there in the Second Jacobite Rebellion, is what it's called. Technically, it's number five, okay, but Charles is specifically referring to it as the Second Jacobite Rebellion started with only Charles. <laughs> and whoever was on his frigate with him. He's got no soldiers. He's got a couple of, of, of people that like him. Basically just Charles saying, I'm king. Strangely, he kind of expected everybody in Scotland was going to come behind him. And it's like, most of the people didn't. Most of the people did not flock to his standard. But as he started marching south with his men, every once in a while there would be people that would start joining him. And then he started promising to pay people to follow him. And so then the clans went, oh, well, uh, you know. <laughs> So by the time he starts marching down, he gets about 3,000 guys, which is a chunk, but it's not a ton of people. There's no way 3,000 ragged soldiers are going to beat the English army, right? Except that most of the English army is still sitting in mainland Europe, fighting the last little bits of the War of Austrian Succession, a.k.a. King George's War. Because that's still going on. And so it's it's like he's going in the back door while all the all the police are over here. He's going and doing this. So he's, there's only a token little bit of British forces in in Scotland at this time. So he marches on to Edinburgh, and those token British forces there's just not a lot that they can do. They 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 tussle them here and there, but it's it's basically it's hard to stop them. The the city forces basically just opened up the gates and went. We refused to walk in and try to do anything. So fine. And Charles is officially named King James VIII by his followers in Edinburgh. 
pretty much only by his followers. Nobody else picks up with that. They're, they're like, you're King James the Eighth. No. Nobody else thinks of you as King James the Eighth. Even the everyday people in Scotland, they're like, I don't. A, either I don't think I care, or B, I still kind of see you as that papist from Rome. Most of the people in Scotland are Protestants. I mean, they like the idea that he's Charles Stuart, you know, that he's actually genetically from the area, as opposed to this German-speaking King George. But that's about the only thing we like about him. Except the people that like him love him. I mean, Bonnie Prince Charlie, oh, he's great. You know, oh, it's great. You know, this is the guy we really, really want. But only those people. So, and so there's only like two. Really minority then. They're a crazily vocal minority. Um, uh, even today, they will oftentimes refer to 1745 as Charles's year. And they'll say it in Gaelic. Scots Gaelic. You know? And so it's like, they love him. Except for all the other people who go, I hate you, you pointless guy. Did they, did he have the pain? Let's get to that. <laughs> they win this battle called that, custom that pants. Determines how you're favored in the end. It is, isn't it? <laughs> Did we get paid? They won a battle in large part because he had a really good strategist named Lord George Murray. This guy was sticking brilliant. And he, he 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 was really good at saying, I've got very little resources to work with. How do I still win? It's kind of like the George Washington of the Jacobite, second fifth Jacobite rebellion. And so he had this surprise attack where he, where he had about 2,500 guys against about 2,500 guys, and, and, but he, he was going up against inexperienced policing British troops, and he surprised them, so he won. And Charles said, ah, then I'm going to contact Louis and tell him, yes, invade, invade, invade now. This will be great. And even though Murray argued against going south, he's like, all right, we, 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 we can arguably, possibly take Scotland. You can be king of Scotland. I think I've got this planned out. I think if we do this right and we then we spin things right, the Scottish people will come behind us and we can we can I don't think we can take England. I'm, I'm pretty sure we can't take England. He's like, oh I know we can. I have supporters all through England. They'll rise up and he's I, I don't think they will. Yes, they will. They'll rise up and we will take England and it'll be awesome. So we march on to no, you can't see the arrow. We march on to Derby over here, and we're gonna win it, and this is great, and uh, there's a couple of Irish expatriates that Louis sent, because he's like, well, it's going to take me a little bit to do an invasion army, but we have a bunch of Irishmen sitting here who just like killing Englishmen, so, so send those guys up there. But no English helped them, strangely. No English want to help him invade England. So Charles is incensed with Murray, in large part because Murray was right. He's just like, you didn't. You did this wrong. We're like, I told you not to invade England. We can't invade England. It's it's not going to work. He's like, well, then you screwed it up. You're an idiot. You're screwing up my kingship. Charles wanted to keep going to London itself. I know. If we can't take Derby, we'll take England. We'll take London because London will be easier, right? Because it's more northly. No, it's like the most defended city in all of England. And by now, the British Army has heard about this, and it's all coming back into southern England, like to London and stuff. Murray's like, there's no way. Our army is deserting in droves, because the only thing, the only two things that we did that made the, the Scottish help us is A, say, Scotland, 
we're in England now. They don't want to be here. They're miles away from their home. And we'll give you lots of money. And we don't have any money yet. Because we won't make a kingdom yet. We just keep marching all the time. We have to go back to Scotland and dig in. We have to. And he's like, well, then you screwed it all up. And very upsetly, they go back up to Scotland. And it's like, fine, fine, since you're screwing everything up. The moment that Louis heard that they retreated, he's like, okay, then we're done. That's it. Now, I will not throw more men at another failed rebellion. I'm not doing that. Which, of course, makes this an officially failed rebellion. Right? Well, especially, I mean, if they're not, if France doesn't have any beef with Scotland. No. They only have beef with England. And if Jake, you know, okay. Bobby Charles is like, I'm not going to... I'm not going to actually take England, but I can also see King Louis going, okay, never mind. Well, and you got to remember, at this time in history, you have beef with whoever you feel like having beef with. You know, this, you, you're going to have a problem with whoever you happen to have a problem with this week. It's, it, it's, it's very much a petulant high school cafeteria kind of moment in history where it's like, are we buddies? Are we buddies? We're best friends. Oh, really? You flirted with my girlfriend. Fine. I hate you forever. I hate you. Now, you want to be my best friend? Because I know you hate him, too. Yeah, you're my best friend. You're my best friend, except you just took my cookie. I know you've never really liked her. She took my cookie. You want to be my best friend? By the way, he doesn't like you, either. He said so. He wrote a note that looks suspiciously like my handwriting. Because he never liked you. Seriously, this is the sort of stuff that you see all over the place in the mid-18th century. It's... Study, study 18th century diplomacy sometime. You get all this, you know, it's like, this is the most blatant forgery I've ever seen. Doesn't matter. Anyway, April 1746, stragglers uh, that are still technically following Charles lost the Battle of Cullenden and lost huge. Jacobites lost nearly 2,000 men. The British lost 50. This is a big deal. Except, this painting is not a good painting of the Battle of Culloden. It looks like you've got a bunch of red-coated English troops taking down a rabble of scroungy Scottish clansmen. But you actually had a coalition of English and Scottish national troops taking down a rabble of scroungy Scottish clansmen. Because if you remember, the Campbells had set up the Black Watch specifically to fight against the Jacobites, right? Remember Black Watch plan? So the whole point of the Black Watch was to defend Scotland against the Jacobites. And now that the Black Watch is back in Scotland, out the mainland of Europe, they were brought in, and that's a large part of why Cullinan was the way it was, because the Black Watch went, you know, they're like Scottish Special Forces, you just, you don't, you don't tend to beat them. So there's a whole bunch of people, including the rest of Scotland, that took down the Jacobites. Now, you're Charles, what do you do? Go back to Rome. Go back to Rome. But you have all these supporters here, what do you do for them? Yeah, you abandon him. He's like, nope, I'm done. It was like the moment that they lost it. He's like, you know what? I would have taken all of England if it weren't for all these incompetent, stupid Scottish clansmen, and stupid people, and treacherous leaders, and people like Murray who don't know what they're doing. I would have taken that all if it weren't for these stupid Scottish. But the Scottish were the only ones that liked you. Yeah, well, they're stupid. I hated them. I've always hated them. I would have been king now if it weren't for them. So he disguises himself as a maid. <laughs> Endearing himself to the Scottish, let me tell you. Dis disguise himself as a lady's maid, goes back to France, and he's like, next time I invade, we're going to do this right. 
We are not done with the Jacobite rebellions, okay? I know, it just keeps going on and on and on. Every Scottish drop of blood in me wants to like this guy. I mean, he's Bonnie Prince Charlie. He's really cool songs about him, all this kind of stuff. But every part of me that actually has like gray matter that, that has neurons firing says, this guy is such an idiot. He is, thank you, there, I have something to hang my hat on. He was a tenacious idiot. Thank you, now I feel much better about liking him, not much, but a little. All right, let's moving on. 1747, a guy named Peter Sands is executed. He was born in the Catalan region of Spain, which is up here in the north. So they speak Catalan, which is kind of this weird mishmash of Spanish and French and it's really kind of a fun little language. Anyway, but he joins the Dominicans at the age of 17. And being a Dominican, they have a strong presence, or at least they're trying to have a strong presence out in the Orient. And so he's going to go and travel to the Spanish Philippines at the age of 33 to learn Chinese and ultimately go to China to be a missionary in China. That's cool. When he arrives in China in 1713, remember, the church is now messed up in China, right? Remember from a couple weeks ago? The church had been doing spectacularly in China. Under the Jesuits, they had been growing leaps and bounds, because if you remember, the Jesuits had kind of acclimated themselves to the customs of the Orient. They're like, we're going to learn Chinese, we're going to use good Chinese words to explain God to the Chinese. We're either going to dress in these courtly scholarly robes, or we're going to dress in orange like the, the, the Buddhist priests do. Either way, we're, we're, we're going to speak in our, in our nonverbal, speak in our, in our words, speak in our, our modes of dress. Everything that we do to try to reach the Chinese where they are. Now, you could see this as accommodation, and I'm not going to argue that they did everything right here, but the, the church itself in China was growing. Emperor Kangxi made an official religion of, of the, the empire, built churches himself. It was really cool. But thanks to the other Dominicans, all that went by the wayside. Because the Dominicans said, well, the Jesuits are getting too powerful and we never like them anyway. And, and we think they're being too Chinese in reaching the Chinese. We need to make everything Rome. Right? Because that's what Jesus said. Clearly, in the book of Hezekiah, Jesus said... <laughs> Thou shalt go and make everything Rome. No, but there are several popes that literally said that. Go and make the world Rome. Just like England eventually went, oh, go and make the world England. They were also under fire. So they're under fire from, the, the, from Rome and the Dominicans, but they're also under fire from Kangxi by this time. The very guy that had loved the church to begin with now said, oh, you guys are barbaric. You guys are xenophobic. You're... I loved the church. I thought Christianity was cool until Pope Clement XI said, everything Chinese is bad. Chinese, everything the Chinese do is bad. Do not learn their language. Do not dress like them. Do not do any of their festivals. Do not, they're all a bunch of horrible, horrible monkey pagans. You just go, no, 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 please, please don't put that in writing. Oh, yes, I'll put that in writing. Racist, horribly xenophobic things. I'll put it in writing and send it to them read this to the emperor, and explain why he's like, no, 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 please don't do this. Please don't do this. It's like, yes, explain to him why we need to fix the church there. Yes. Could you imagine if 
300 years ago, the church settled into China, and the emperor said, I'm going to allow this to be an official uh, church, or official religion of the, of the empire, and what if it had actually flourished and become the official church of the empire? Could you imagine? No, I can't. I can't possibly imagine what the world would have been like with the, with the resources and, and the might of China supporting the church. But Clement fixed all that by saying, no, 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 everything Chinese is bad. So 1721, Kangxi, who had made it an official religion of the realm, said, okay, it's outlawed. I, it is illegal now to have Christian mission in China. Illegal now to have churches. Burn all the churches. These guys are crazy, and we need to, we need to purge the cancer. But Sands has been there for eight years by the time that happens. He's like, well, I'm not, I'm not ready to go yet. So he, he has an underground movement where he's still preaching Christianity and still building churches. With other Dominican priests, they continue doing evangelism. 1730, he's even consecrated a bishop in China, even though the church is illegal in China. So Sands has got this, this underground church going. 1747, four of his fellow priests are arrested for illegally evangelizing. And they are tortured horribly for days to give up the whereabouts of Sands which they don't do, which the Chinese actually are impressed by, because they're like, we did about the worst Chinese tortures we could think of doing, and these guys would not speak. But Sands hears about it, and immediately turns himself in and says, whoa, 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 here, take me, take me, take me. Let them go. Stop torturing them. To which the Chinese say, nope, okay, this way we're going to torture all five of you, and then behead you publicly. Which is what this painting has been about the whole time. Last word, Sands looks up at his executioner and said, Rejoice with me, my friend. I'm going to heaven. And his executioner said, I wish I were going with you. According to tradition, both the executioner and several of the people in the crowd became Christians. Because they said, You don't die the way I thought you were going to die. You don't stand up under torture the way we thought. The emperor calls you guys barbaric and crazy, and I don't see that in you. And so, as we've seen so many times in history, when you put Christianity in power, we all go, yes, but I'm in charge, and you're not in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in better charge than you are. And I think we need, all do, we need to all be Baptists today. No, we need to all be Lutherans today. No, we need to be all Dominicans today. No, we need to be all Lutherans today. But when you put us under hardship, when you slaughter the church, when you make the church illegal, it grows, and it grows healthier and healthier and healthier. I'm uncomfortable with praying, dear God, please mess with the church. Um, today is officially, even though we, we won't technically be doing this as a church for a couple weeks, but today is officially the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I can't help but sit there and think, I would never pray for persecution, and I certainly pray for my brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution. And yet, when I hear people talk about, boy, it's getting really rough in the United States, I mean, the, the government is getting more and more adversarial to Christianity, and I say, yes, and that will stink. And yet, it's probably our best bet of actually getting healthier as, as a church here in the, in the country. And I don't say that lightly, just saying everything I've ever studied in history would suggest when you actually force people to say, I'm going to kill you unless you take your Christianity seriously 
or even if you take your Christianity seriously, what are you going to do with this? You know, where the rubber hits the road, what are you going to do with it? That's where people go, oh, I see what this has always been all about. Anyway, 1749, other side of the world, another Catholic missionary, Junipero Serra, lands in Veracruz. He has been, actually he was born Miquel Serra, on the Spanish island of Majorca, over here. Um, and he joined a local Franciscan monastery. Because, you know, we just talked about Sons was in the, in the Dominicans, this guy's a Franciscan. And he actually named himself Junipero, Junipero, in honor, uh, in order of, uh, in honor of St. Juniper, who was a friend of Francis's, and he's a Franciscan, so. Anyway, 1749, brothers are able to go to Veracruz and, and staff a mission there. And he had a bunch of Spanish soldiers to help, which sometimes he butted heads with. But Sarah helped set up a mission amongst the Palme natives, teaching them about Christianity, teaching them how to farm, how to sow, how to do other European stuff so that they could trade with other regions, with other colonies, and of things and sustain itself. He also preached a really rather intense version of Catholicism. He encouraged parents to beat the sin out of their children, as well as out of their own flesh. In fact, he regularly wore uh, wire barbed into his, into his shirt so that it would hurt. He beat himself most nights with a chain made of sharpened links because he needed to beat the sin out of his flesh. This is a big thing. Okay, here's the thing. You know how I love to show you pictures. I googled self-flagellation just to see if I could find a, a picture that I could show you. And, and I, I literally was almost physically ill. So I'm just like, um, I, I don't see any here that I'm comfortable with perusing and putting up here. But yes, this became, especially in a lot of Hispanic cultures throughout um, Central and South America and in the Philippines, and it's still really big in the Philippines, this beat yourself until your flesh is literally in ribbons. If you can see the bone of, of your shoulder blades, that's when you know you've done this. They have whole festivals every year where people beat themselves bloody down the street, or you beat one another bloody down the street. Um, so he frequently damaged himself to the point where even the College of San Fernando had to make a rule forbidding self-flagellation to the point of permanent injury. Like, you don't get to beat yourself to the point where you cannot function anymore. When you, when, you have, when you feel like you have to put that on paper and make that a rule, people are doing this badly. And it's happening a lot. In fact, uh, there was one point where he, he was beating himself in the middle of a sermon to, and, and one of the people got up and took the, the, uh, the chain from him saying, yeah, you, you shouldn't do that. And he started beating himself in, into a frenzy and ended up dying from his wounds. So it's, after a while you start going, have you guys even read Brave New World? You know, you should. This is there's there actually becomes its own weirdness about beating yourself like this. No, that it wasn't written. Yet. Anyway, but he's also famous for whipping the peasants too, not just out of anger, but specifically to try to beat the sin out of them. And so that was a regular thing where you would just beat the just beat the snot out of the out of the Indians. Now they appointed him the representative of the Spanish Inquisition there. Not because he was a bad person, but because he was a good person. He was extremely committed to getting rid of sin. And he had written about the great number of witches, the amount of witchcraft around there, and could somebody please appoint uh, an inquisitor? And so Spain said, well, we don't actually have any Dominican inquisitors over there. But you sound like a Dominican. Hey, Franciscan, would you be willing to be the Spanish inquis uh, inquisitor there, which he, which he did? And he, he brought the area in line with the church, baptized thousands. 
He's a good guy. Right? September of this year, Pope Francis was visiting the United States, right? And while he was here, he canonized Saint Junipero. Oh, uh, that's why they all had a problem with it. Yep. I mean, I saw it on the news, but I couldn't quite get the beginning of why yep. they were, some of them were having issues. He declared him, quote, one of the founding fathers of the United States, unquote. Many Catholics were overjoyed. They're like, yay, this is the first saint ever canonized in America. Well, Not the United, says United States. Okay, go on. Yeah, that he was one of the founding fathers of the United States. I, I see what you're saying. But he, he was the first one that, that the Pope came and said, while I'm in America, I'm going to canonize a saint in the Americas. Okay. But there's also this intense backlash that Nicky was just talking about, because opponents said, he's horribly abusive to the natives. And he turned a blind eye when the Spanish soldiers were raping women. And he forced evangelism and Europeanization on people. He was a symbol of, of the dogmatic European powers that took over America. There's all these people who are like, he, and I was reading one website where they're like, he was a, the, 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 the smiling Catholic face of, of a movement that, that destroyed 95% of the population of, of Mexico. I'm like, okay, we already talked about this. A, I'm pretty sure it wasn't smallpox coming from the European. Now, yes, they did kill a lot of people. I'm not saying that, but that huge mass you know, uh, decimation of the population wasn't probably a European disease. It was probably an American disease. But even if it were a European disease, as much as you can say, oh, it's horrible that the Europeans brought them over, you can't really say you're bad for bringing it over. It's like, we just, all we did, we, if we just walked across the sea, we would have brought smallpox necessarily. So, but they're like, no, he's exactly everything that was wrong with that. And, 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 and the argument has been that the Catholic Church is just glossing that over. But he really was doing it because he genuinely thought this was the right thing to do. He genuinely thought this is the way to. He didn't beat anybody as nearly as bad as he beat himself. So, well, that's the thing. Is he an awesome human being who brought people to the Lord? Arguably, is he a horrible human being who beat himself, beat everybody else, had a horrible theology that was all fundamentally focused on if you hurt yourself enough, God will forgive you? Yes. So was he a, was he a symbol of the imperialist power that was destroying the Americas, or is he a symbol of, of Catholicism to its most devout? Yes. Not surprising, no. I've never heard. But he's an Argentinian, right? He's from Buenos Aires. Isn't he? Yeah. Uh, so, so the Pope is very pro. Hey, this guy's from America. But I don't. I, I haven't heard it. Pardon? Yeah, right there. Yeah. What's next to the devil? Oh, that's a picture of um, uh, one of the cardinals in America that is uh, in Mexico that is encouraging the canonization. And so they're like. Yes, and they. They put a fake Nazi symbol on it, oh, and they put a fake, fake little, okay. they drew a little fake mustache. It's cheesy photo manipulation. But anyway, so this is the devil, and this is the devil's advocate. Anyway, 1750, <coughs> Treaty of Madrid is signed. If you remember back in, way back, 1494, Pope's Treaty of Tordesillas had divided up the New World between Spain and Portugal, right? Um, the earlier Treaty of, of 
is it Alcasolas, I think is how you pronounce that, uh, has given Portugal all of Africa and everything east of there because they didn't realize how much was east of there. This time, they said, since they got all of Africa, you get most of the New World. We'll just make sure we give them the tip here of, of Brazil. So they got some of that. Later, the Treaty of Zaragoza, after they'd realized all that was going on, gave Portugal and uh, India, China, Japan, most of the Orient, but not the Philippines because the Spanish were already there in the Philippines. So Pope keeps, different popes keep divvying up the world for Portugal and Spain, the Catholic powers. Anyway, 1750, Portugal has become buddies with Pope Benedict XIV. Remember him from last week? This is the guy that, that even the, the, the princess, the crown princess of Portugal is named after. He's, he is buddy-buddy with Portugal. This is also the same guy that specifically told the uh, Jesuits, you cannot wear orange, you cannot do anything with this, and you cannot, um, you cannot even be allowed to go on the mission field unless you sign a piece of paper that specifically says you will never question Rome or bring any of this up ever again. No, 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 that's, that's, that's Japan that the emperors are doing. Anyway, so Pope Benedict comes along, and, 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 and Portugal has strong military presence in, in Brazil, bolstered by all their slavers, because they're getting a lot of slaves from Brazil, because Portugal is the major slave power. So Portugal routinely goes into Spanish territory, takes villages, takes slaves, because they can't. I mean, Spain is kind of spread out all over the place here, and, and Portugal has this strong presence there. From 1735 to 1737, Spain and Portugal are in open warfare with one another over what is now called Uruguay. They're like, both of them wanted, Portugal keeps, even Spain keeps going, but the Pope said it's ours! <laughs> and Portugal essentially says, but the Pope's not here. Which is a common theme. Which is a common theme, yeah. Uh, I've, got a, I've got an army in Poitiers, really? <laughs> Yell really loud for them, see if they hear you. You're not in Poitiers right now. You, there's only so much you can do. That war was finally interrupted by the War of Jenkins' Ear that we talked about last week, right? Because this stuff matters. Thank you. Remember, all this stuff matters. There's a reason why I bring these things up. The War of Jenkins' Ear, which then erupted itself into the War of Austrian Succession, a.k.a. King George's War, which just which interrupted like everything and made everything have to stop. So once all the dust settles from King George's War, Benedict says, all right, you two make nice. We're going to resolve your conflict. Portugal, give Uruguay back to Spain. Spain, are you happy now? Yes, because it was ours in the first place. We already got Portugal. We already got Uruguay. It was supposed to be ours to begin with. And, they, and he says, oh, Spain, you have to give Portugal a little bit. And just to be fair, it was ours to begin with. Be fair. They gave you back Uruguay. So you need to give them a little bit of territory. Because <laughs> I'm being fair. Isn't it remotely fair? There's a whole line here. This is not their stuff. But I like Portugal. And I'm the Pope. And I'm here now. And I'm here now. So I'm involved. This territory included all the Spanish Jesuit mission stations <laughs> that had been set up in large part to provide safe havens for the natives of the region, regions against the Portuguese slavers. The Pope then gave the Portuguese the right to forcibly evict natives from those mission stations because it's their territory now. And he didn't like the Jesuits to begin with, right? He's never liked the Jesuits. He didn't like them in the Far East and he doesn't like them here. So he's like, yeah, you have every, you have my permission. Forcibly evict them. And again, as we said last week, 
This is the historical context for the movie The Mission, where you had all these Jesuits who were trying to reach the like the Guarani, the, the, the Indians there, um, and, and are being attacked by, and, and, and trying to explain their position, and, and, the, and the Pope signs off on the, the fact that the Portuguese get to take everybody and kill them. Now, even though technically the main character, as we talked about, was based on somebody who had been ministering a century earlier, but the historical context is here at this stage of the game, when you have a Pope going, I like the Portuguese. So, Benedict already doesn't like the Jesuits, doesn't bother him that you got a whole bunch of Portuguese soldiers killing Jesuit priests and enslaving natives. It's kind of a win-win thing to him. It helps Portugal, and he even, remember last week, did a, a, a papal bull about the fact that those horrible mission stations should should not be forcing those, those natives to have to stay in the mission stations anymore, so the natives should be able to go back to their to their homes because basically staying in those mission stations is about is a bit like slavery, and the, and the Catholic Church doesn't do that. So he so he did a papal bull against slavery. Various people will even pull that out. They'll chalk that out to see Benedict was against slavery. And you go pro Portugal. Benedict issued a bull saying that natives had to leave the protect the protection of the Jesuit mission stations. This says and go back to their their villages, which are in Portuguese territory, the Portuguese slavers. The bull was phrased like it was anti-slavery, but everything about it was pro-slavery. So, strange enough, 1756, the Guarani War breaks out. Because the Guarani were happy about the Pope declaring open season on them. Like, um, we, all things being equal, would rather not be enslaved. Go figure. And so they allied themselves with the Jesuit priests and actively fought back against the Portuguese. And again, this is if you how many of you have ever seen the movie The Mission? Okay, good. It's a really powerful movie. It's really, really good. But there's a point at the end where the Jesuits who are supporting the, the Indians have to decide. Are we fighting back or are we taking a stand? Are we actually going to take up arms against people and shoot people to protect these Native Americans? Or are we going to just continue ministering and refuse to surrender them? What's, what's the most godly thing to do? What's the most caring thing to do? It's not even a question of militantism versus pacifism, per se, though you, I suppose you could read those themes into it. It's just more, what is going to have the most powerful impact? Can we win a war against Portugal? Or do we, are we ultimately trying to win hearts? And so there's a, there's a powerful <laughs> montage at the end where some Jesuits are are trying to fight alongside the natives against the soldiers, and some Jesuits are like, we're doing a worship service. If they're going to kill us, they're going to have to kill us while I'm holding a cross and praying. They're going to have to shoot a priest. You, they're going to shoot a revolutionary. Me, they're going to have to shoot a priest. But that's what the Jesuits are having to figure out at this stage of the game. To help against the natives, weak Spanish king Fernando VI, remember him from last week, this is the guy that um, actually fumbled that whole war of, of, of Jenkins' ear and said, I don't want to fight anymore. I'm tired of fighting. My dad was good at this. I'm not good at this. So weak Spanish King Fernando VI is forced by the Pope to actually give military support for King João uh, V's Portuguese forces against the Guarani. So I want you to do the math with me here. The Pope says, hey, King of Spain, you have to send Spanish troops into what used to be your territory 
to support the Portuguese troops that are now invading your territory, because I told them that they could, against the natives there and kill all the Spanish Jesuits. And Fernando says, it stinks to be king. Fine. So think about how horrific that is. You go, wait a minute. I'm actually having to defeat my own territory? I'm having to send troops in. The troops that up until 10 minutes ago were saying we're defending all the orange parts of this from the Portuguese troops. They now get new orders saying, by the way, you're now in support of the Portuguese troops to take over these whole areas. Would you have enjoyed being a Spanish soldier at this time? Would you have enjoyed being a Spanish officer? How do you explain that to your troops? By the way, remember last week's battle where your buddy was killed by the Portuguese to defend this area? The Pope has now decided that this is Portuguese territory and that we're supposed to support the Portuguese. So everything that you've just been doing for the last three years is uh, pointless. And uh, everybody that died, died pointlessly. Now let's go kill a bunch of priests while they're praying and help the Portuguese enslave uh, the natives. I don't like my job. Oh, tons of desertion. There's tons of desertion at this step, at this stage in the game. But again, it's kind of like back when you look at the Jacobites, you they go, you're asking people to turn against their own country. Is that going to, who's going to say, okay, and who's going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. So, wacky funness. The Guarani lost more than 1,500 men in this, in this war. Just in the fighting, I mean, we're not talking about all the people who were enslaved, all this kind of stuff, all the villages that were burned. Just in the actual war itself, they lost more than 1,500 men, while the Europeans lost four. Because if your Jesuits and native troops, tough though they were, I mean, if I were in the jungle running around, I, I don't think I'd want to fight them. They were very tough. But you go, yeah, they've got bows and arrows. And priests who are wanting to help against the combined Spanish and Portuguese forces with all their cannons and all their rifles and all their muskets and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, you're, you're going to lose, and you're going to lose horribly. There's no way you're going to win this fight. And all of this now belongs to Portugal and slavers with the Pope's blessings. So, how would you describe where we're sitting at in history now? How would you stop and say what has happened today when you look at all of that? Any commonalities that you see? Any patterns? Everybody's bad. No, no, actually, Pedro was. Pedro Sands. Everybody else is bad. Okay. I, or, I just like someone to poison both of us. Oh! oh. <laughs> That's horrible! Anybody listening to this online, she didn't mean it. No, 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 no. Some popes are better than other popes. This pope, I don't like so much. What else? Okay, beyond just everybody's bad, I don't like this pope. Historically, what kinds of stuff do you see? Because I'm not just trying to pick on popes or things. Okay, well... Excellent. 
when you're talking about Muhammad bin Saud and 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 the, and the, and the whatever you're talking about, you, you you end up talking about how much of this is religion, how much of this is politics, how much of this is who gets to be in charge and who gets to dictate terms, how much of this is religious extremism, how much of this is political expediency, how much of this is this all getting intertwined? And you say, right, this is horrible. You go, okay. In the middle of all this jockeying for position, I want what I want out of this, um, you're doing good, but that makes me angry. So I'm going to undermine everything good you just did. So I, oh, wait, we just destroyed the, the church in China. What did work in the midst of all this stuff? What else I find difficult to put into words is how the powers that be have Well, and that's that's an important thing. I mean, when you realize, let me take it back far enough. You go back to ancient Samaria. They didn't even have first-person personal pronoun. There was no way of saying I or me or mine. There was no sense of identity. The only person that had that was 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 the king, who had a special royal pronoun that he could use for himself. Everybody else is just part of the collective. We do this. We are doing that. There is no way to express I have any individuality at all. That's thousands of years ago, but. All this to say, it's it's a it's an ongoing sliding scale. This sense of individuality is kind of a relatively modern idea. The idea that human beings have essential worth is not something that most of the world, even now, still understands. That when when we try to express that diplo uh, diplomatically around the world today, you know, it's like you can't do this. Human beings matter. Large chunks of the world look at us like, like, namby pamby. They're like, "This, you're just ridiculous. Why would you even talk like that? You just nobody thinks like that. You're the only people that think that way." And part of that is because sometimes we we express it like that. We just go, "Hey, people matter." Put that in the diplomatic pouch. Yeah, put it in the hat. And you just go, "You realize you're, you're speaking contrary to the way most of the world looks at humanity, because we have a unique way of looking at it in, in our country." in large part because we're coming originally out of a Christian tradition. It was a uniquely Christian perspective to look at things and say, people matter. The poor matter. Human beings matter. Women matter. Children matter. Your brother matters. In fact, he should matter to you more than you matter to you. Stop and think like that. That was astoundingly different. I think in the United States sometimes we don't realize that because we wrap it in our individualism and we say, well, yeah, that just makes sense. No, we've bastardized something that was revolutionary when it came out. This idea that every human being matters. You go, but I do matter. And you go, no, every other human being matters. And that changes how you look at it. George and everybody was always over there and, and there were people colonizing America and and then you know the king was like let's fight this war and let's do that war and mm -hmm. and give that 
give that island back and everything. They're like, wait a second, our lives matter. You're mm -hmm. over there. We're here actually doing this. And so we're not going to actually let you do that to us. Exactly. And now we're seeing the Jesuits doing that, standing essentially against Rome and saying, but this is wrong. But the, in all of this that we've seen this, this decade here, the one thing that actually seemed to work was the guy that died. You know, it was, it was, the, it was the, the priest who said, we won't stop ministering. And, and they're Dominicans. I mean, the people that screwed it up over there, but these are still good Dominican priests saying, we're going to keep ministering to people. And the, the, the guys that, that die horribly, beautifully, you go, yeah, that is changing lives. But all this political posturing, all these life-slaughtering things, you go, nah, that's just smearing boundaries. Yeah, yeah and then we got to finish. Oh, well, in, in China, you mean? Yeah. Well, the, the church wasn't removing them from China. Um, the Chinese were trying to remove them from China. So they were lauded for, for, for staying there by the church. Were these guys in um, Brazil, Spanish, whoever owns them at the moment, who were fighting back, were they asking you? Oh, we're going to have some fun talking about what happens to the Jesuits. So I'll leave that to, I won't answer that question. We're going to have some fun talking about what happens to the Jesuits. Because the Jesuits are trying very hard to do the right thing. So pretty much... Isn't that, isn't that great? I'll just end with that. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Um, I thank you for everything that's come before and the witness of all those who have come before us. Help us, Lord, to genuinely appreciate that you've been moving. And even in the midst of the darkest dumbest times in history where people just seem to have forgotten what it means to live out their Christian walk. Lord, I thank you that even in the middle of that, you give us examples of people who are willing to go to their grave to stand up for what's right. I thank you for, even if we don't necessarily always agree with everything, I thank you for people like like Peter Pedro Sanz, who was willing to do that. I thank you for the the Jesuits who are willing to, to die to, to protect these people. I thank you for, for so many people that have gone before us to say what matters is how you live in honoring of God. And I pray, Lord, help us to live like we honor you. And like every human being that you have created matters. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I decided to